Chapter Seventeen, Part Two of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Seventeen, Part Two: The Benson Murder and Arson. The following extract from a newspaper published in the state of Missouri, USA, tells so concisely and accurately the story of a brutal murder committed on the confines of my district in May 1913 that I reproduce the item intact. The Alberta coroner's explanation, as given to us afterwards of his reason for not having had a post-mortem examination made, was that there was no doctor within fifty miles that an adjournment of the inquest for the necessary three or four days would have caused great inconvenience to everyone concerned, including the widow, and that, so far as he and his jury were able to judge, there was no necessity for incurring the expense of the professional services and of the delay. From the Kansas City Star, Sunday, December twenty-first, 1913 Justice at Quick Step the story of the swift-moving court of Canada and a Missourian who will be hanged. A man from Missouri was sentenced last week to be hanged in Canada. The manner in which the Canadian government prosecuted the case, the surefire way in which the murderer was brought to justice without technicalities to befog the issue, the directness and speed of it, are lessons the court of this country might take with profit. The ten witnesses who were taken by the Canadian government from Missouri to Calgary, Canada, to testify against the murderer, at a total cost of $3,000 to that government, have returned. They are loud in their praise of the sureness and swiftness with which the sword of justice is swung up there, compared with the leisurely manner in which it is wielded here. One of those witnesses was M. E. Feltis, Sheriff of Caldwell County, Missouri. Quote, the courts of Canada waste no time in technicalities, dilatory tactics, or meaningless legal phrases, he said. It would be a good thing if our courts would copy them in some things. End quote. The Crime Last April, John B. Benson, a lawyer of Bramer, Missouri, and William Jasper Collins, a young, near-well-to-do of the same town, went to Canada to take up land claims. Benson had $3,500, Collins had no money, and Benson paid all of his expenses for the trip to Canada and for filing on the homestead. Benson built a small frame house and barn on his claim, which was in the country, 150 miles from Calgary, and Collins lived with him. Benson sent for his wife and young son to come, but before they reached Calgary she got word from Collins that her husband had been burned to death in a fire which started from an exploding oil stove. She went on to the claim where the body of her husband, the face disfigured with burns, awaited her. The coroner in that district held an inquest, and as the indications were that Benson had been burned to death, the verdict was to that effect. Mrs. Benson, her son, and Collins returned to Braymore, Missouri, with the body, Mrs. Benson, loaning Collins the money to pay his fare. None of the money which Benson had when he died was recovered and the supposition was that it had been destroyed in the fire, which burned the greater part of his clothing. With 1800 in his pocket. Soon after the funeral in Bramer, Collins began spending money freely, and this excited suspicion. 
the masonic lodge in bramer of which benson was a member engaged a detective from the pinkerton agency in kansas city and he went to bramer last august and exhumed the body of benson the pinkerton detective made it appear that he was working in the interest of an insurance company that wished to make sure that it was benson's body before it would pay the policy it had on his life this was to quiet any suspicions collins might have the body was identified by j a neville a dentist who had put some bridge work in benson's mouth an examination disclosed that one side of the skull was crushed in as if with the blow of a club and a revolver bullet had entered the breast and pierced the heart collins was arrested and in his pocket was found one thousand eight hundred dollars consisting of ninety twenty-dollar bills all new and all of consecutive numbers issued by the first national bank of bramer the bank officials said they had paid those bills to benson just before he departed for canada in the pockets of collins were also found a bunch of keys and a knife that had been owned by benson collins made a full written confession telling how he first stunned benson with a blow on the head and then shot him robbed him and poured oil on his body and set it on fire the canadian authorities were notified and within a few days the canadian government in ottawa sent to president wilson in washington a request for the extradition of collins a document without two wits if this had been an official request from this government to canada for the extradition of a person charged with murder it would have been a formal and lengthy document full of antiquated verbiage and numerous whereases and to wits and as aforesaid but the request of the canadian government was couched in fewer than fifty words it stated simply that on may first nineteen thirteen william jasper collins had murdered john t benson in the province of alberta canada and that collins had taken refuge in the united states and was in jail in caldwell county missouri and the canadian government requested this government to deliver him to the canadian authorities at portal on the national boundary in manitoba president wilson put his o k on the brief document and gave it to w j bryan secretary of state he o k s it and sent it to governor major who sent it to the sheriff of caldwell county then began delays a hearing must be had to determine if collins should go that was held in chilkooth collins fighting against extradition and repudiating the confession he had made but in due time having exhausted every legal cudgel for the prevention of his extradition the court said collins must go to canada for trial meanwhile the authorities in alberta had their plans all set for a speedy trial once they should get collins in custody they sent enough money to sheriff feltis for him to bring to the canadian border collins neville the dentist e h michaels the undertaker james burnett a constable william h pye a merchant dr h a schroeder dr gus s dowell louise w reed prosecuting attorney of caldwell county the widow of benson and the pinkerton detective all to be used as witnesses against collins they promised to pay all their expenses from the time they left home until they returned and to see that collins had fair play they paid all the expenses of his brother from caldwell county to calgary and back home again the total cost was three thousand five hundred dollars 
the party was met at the international boundary by the canadian officials and went straight to calgary where it was met by a party of witnesses from the scene of the crime who had come one hundred and fifty miles a preliminary next day the day after arrival in calgary a preliminary hearing was given collins in the barracks of the mounted police the government appointed an able lawyer to defend him but how different from the american method there were no motions for continuances no changes of venue nor any other dilatory tactics whatever within twenty-four hours after his arrival in calgary collins was given a hearing and held for trial only one day intervened between the preliminary hearing and the beginning of the trial which was held in the supreme courtroom in calgary before chief justice harvey with james short as prosecutor for the crown in any american court a day or two at least would have been consumed in getting a jury and in many cases in murder trials in missouri weeks and even months have been spent at this it took just twenty minutes to select a jury to try collins in america a jury of twelve men try a man for murder in canada a jury of six does it a jury in a hurry there was no quibbling no man was asked if he had conscientious scruples against concurring in a verdict of guilty if that verdict might mean the infliction of the death penalty all the long and complicated questions asked jurors in this country were omitted twelve men were called from the veneer and were sworn the state struck off three names the defence struck off three the remaining six were sworn to try the case fairly and return a verdict according to the law and evidence all done in twenty minutes and the trial began at once it lasted two days there was not a quibble nor a trick nor a subterfuge in the whole of it only one objection was made by the defence throughout the trial and that was to the introduction of the confession made by collins his lawyer rose to object to it and was stopped by the judge who raised his hand in warning and said there is no use wasting time in arguing that point the court decides that the confession was given voluntarily by the defendant without the use of threats or promise or hope of reward or clemency it will be introduced in evidence and he will be hanged that day the different witnesses told their stories collins declined to testify in his own defence there was no witness nor evidence for the defence the arguments were made very briefly the jury retired and within ten minutes returned with a verdict of guilty and the judge without leaving the bench sentenced collins to be hanged on february seventeenth and he will be hanged that day his lawyer will appeal and it will be passed on at once no delay of two or three years as in this country and no hope of reversal february seventeenth collins will be hanged in an enclosure in the barracks of the mounted police and his body will be buried there in an unmarked grave for it is a rule there that the body of a person hanged for murder cannot be claimed by relatives nor others the party of missourians who assisted the canadian authorities in the enforcement of canadian law was given a banquet before they returned and sheriff feltis of caldwell county was told that if he could come back to calgary to see collins hanged all his expenses would be paid by canada the fifty-word communication alluded to in the foregoing was a night lettergram sent at my instigation 
by the Attorney-General's Department to the Secretary of State at Ottawa, asking him to expedite proceedings, and the result, as described, followed. THE WILSON MURDER AND ROBBERY John Wilson was a chief clerk of the Canada Cement Company, which had its works at Exshaw on the line of the Canadian Pacific, about 40 miles west of Calgary. The company used, in the month of May 1914, to pay their men every fortnight, and the money for this purpose was transmitted by the Bank of Montreal in Calgary by means of the Dominion Express Company to the Cement Company at Exshaw. It was part of the duty of the chief clerk in question, on receiving notification from the express company, that the necessary currency for paying the wages had arrived at their office, to go to that office and receive the package of money. On May 22, 1914, the package consisted of a small sack, at the bottom of which was the silver, while the bills were on top. It had been the custom, for about twelve months preceding this date, for one of the other officials of the company to go with the chief clerk to fetch the money, and on this occasion a young man named James Gordon went with Wilson. The company had provided an automatic pistol for the use of the chief clerk on these occasions, and he was in the habit of letting his assistant carry the money and of walking a pace or so behind as an armed escort. This little procession was within about twenty yards of the railway gate, giving egress from that company's premises when it was met by three men who had just come in from the outside. These were Russians, whose names were Max Menelik, Afancy Sokolov, and Serki Kunach, alias Joe Smith. Without a word being said, Joe Smith walked up to young Gordon, presented a revolver at his head with his right hand, and with his left grabbed the bag of money which the boy was carrying in his right hand and ran off. In his surprise and dismay, Gordon called out to Wilson to the effect that the money was gone, and almost simultaneously heard two shots fired behind him. Wilson fell dead. Someone, probably Sokolov, came up behind Gordon and felt his pockets, and then Sokolov and Menelik followed Joe Smith into the bushes, fringing the Bow River. Sokolov, before going, took Wilson's pistol out of his pocket and carried it off. Wilson was killed by a bullet, which entered his body at the fleshy part of his left arm, passed through both lungs, and was found between the under and outer shirts on his right arm. The pistol carried off by Sokolov and Joe Smith were automatic luggers, wicked-looking weapons, sighted up to 2,000 yards. It happened that there was no mounted police detachment at Exshaw, and so pursuit of these ruffians devolved on the men on the spot. Within fifteen to twenty minutes of the occurrence, a force of six men started after the murderers, crossing the river on a raft as their quarry had done. On the other side this party split up, and Ingram Dobson, carrying a shotgun, and William Murby, carrying a rifle, came upon fresh footmarks which they followed. Dobson saw one of the fugitives hiding behind a stump, and promptly emptied his gun into his stomach, while Murby covered him with his rifle and ordered him to throw up his hands, which he did without loss of time. This man turned out to be Max Menelik, the only one of the three who was not armed. His captors took him into custody and handed him over to the police. They had certainly earned the reward of $200 offered 
for the capture of each of the three murderers. Within half an hour of the receipt of the telegram reporting the murder, some constables were dispatched in a motor to Exshaw, upon which point the three neighbouring detachments at Canmore, Morley and Banff, were also ordered to converge. Joe Smith and Sokoloff managed to get away from their pursuers, and the next we heard of the former was shortly after midnight on May 23rd. A freight train had pulled into a place called Cochrane, where a mounted police constable was stationed, and he, with the assistance of the railway police, organized a thorough search thereof. Joe Smith was found in a car, loaded with timber, and after a desperate struggle was arrested by Constable Watts and two of the railway police. It was a fortunate thing that the safety catch of his lugger revolver had become jammed in some way, so that he was unable to use it, or somebody would have been hurt. On his person was found the stolen money, $2,340.20, the silver in one of his pockets and the bills, together with the Bank of Montreal payslip, in the bag inside his shirt. This aroused queries as to what had become of his companion, for it seemed incredible that he should have allowed Joe Smith to carry off all the plunder. I was so much of the opinion that the third man had been disposed of that I circulated the offer of a reward of $200 for Sokoloff's body, dead or alive, but nothing came of it. The Calgary City Police Force had on its staff at that time a detective named Ernest Shoup, who, in addition to fluent English, could speak German, Polish, Slavish, Bohemian, Russian, Ruthenian, and another Slavonic language. He was thus a most desirable accessory to a police force having to do business in such a cosmopolitan city as Calgary had become. He managed to obtain from a Russian information that Sokoloff was hiding in a northern suburb of Calgary, and on June 2nd, the chief constable went thither with a strong squad of his men. The hiding place turned out to be an empty grocery store, which had a small cellar, and in this the fugitive proved to be. As he would not respond to polite invitations to come out, the chief sent for the fire brigade, and shortly had two streams of water pouring into it. After a while, a knocking was heard, and a voice in Russian said, I come out, I give up. Sokolov passed up his pistol and cartridges first, and then came up himself. Shoup's next move was to obtain from his informant John Wilson's pistol, which Sokolov had taken from the dead man's pocket. He had been trying to sell this to the man who gave information of its whereabouts to the detectives. The three prisoners were tried together on June 16th and 17th, and the jury, after 45 minutes' consultation, found them all guilty with a recommendation to mercy in the case of Manilek. They were sentenced to be hanged in the mounted police guardroom at MacLeod on August 26th following, and were sent thither next day. After sentence was pronounced, Sokoloff asked Shoup to go and see him, as he had something of interest to tell him, and in order to explain what followed, it is necessary to go back a little. The man who gave the information as to Sokoloff's whereabouts was a Russian named Fred Erenenko. He was a witness at the trial of the murderers, and told how Sokoloff had admitted to him that he had shot Wilson, and that he had tried to raise money on Wilson's pistol. 
He admitted having been intimate with Sokoloff and Joe Smith, and the trend of his cross-examination went to show that he had been more or less the prime mover of a gang of ruffians, of whom Sokoloff and Smith were the principal tools. Erenenko was asked by the prisoner's counsel, Why did you give Sokoloff away? And he replied, after a moment's reflection, I had to. At all events, as I have said, Sokoloff sent for Shoup and told him that Erenenko had tried to persuade him to kill Shoup on the ground that he was the only man in the country that he had to fear. He made several suggestions as to how this should be done, but Sokoloff either thought that the proposed methods were too risky or did not want to hurt Shoup. One plan that Erenenko proposed was that they should visit Shoup at his home and kill him with some blunt instrument. They should visit the house a few times so as to become thoroughly acquainted with the plan of it, and Shoup then remembered that Erenenko had gone to him on two or three occasions in the previous winter with some papers which he professed himself unable to understand. Shoup refused to receive the reward payable for Sokoloff's arrest, and said he had promised to have it paid to Erenenko. In connection with this matter, I received from the Attorney General's Department the following letter. 27514 Department of Attorney General, Edmonton, May 26, 1914 Superintendent Dean, Royal Northwest Mounted Police, Calgary, Alberta Sir, I beg to convey to you the appreciation of this department for the very efficient manner in which you have conducted the Wilson murder case. The Attorney General is home and is much pleased with the result of your work. I trust that you will be able to capture the third man. I am writing Mr. Short, the Attorney General's agent at Calgary, to arrange for trial of prisoners as soon as possible, as I deem this is a case in which justice should be meted out speedily. I have the honour to be, sir, your obedient servant, signed, John D. Hunt, Acting Deputy Attorney General. I replied that we could not have done what we had done, but for the valuable assistance received from the Canadian Pacific Railway Police and the City Police of Calgary, both of whom helped us to watch all avenues of escape. Mr. Deputy Attorney said he would write a letter of thanks to each of the departments in question. The judge, in summoning up, gave due credit to everybody concerned. End of chapter 17, part 2